At this time, I invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. If you're using a pew Bible, that can be found on page 599. Isaiah 40, and we'll be reading verses 6 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. This is God's word. Do keep your Bibles open at Isaiah 40. Stephen Hawking is well known as a mathematician and a cosmologist, and uh, there's recently been a movie made of his life. And he once explained to the media that one of the most common inquiries in his inbox is the question, can you prove that God does not exist? The answer he gives to that question is this. We are such insignificant creatures on a minor planet of a very average star in the outer suburbs of one of a hundred thousand million galaxies. So it is very difficult for me to believe in a God that would care about us or even notice our existence. Is he right? Of course, he's right about the size of the universe. At least one suspects perhaps it's even greater than he imagines. But is he right about God? You need to know the answer to that question. At one level, it would be very surprising and unexpected that if there was a God responsible for creating this massive universe in which we find ourselves, It would be surprising if that God noticed your existence and mine, or cared. And yet, as we've been studying Isaiah and this 40th chapter, that is precisely, precisely what the prophet Isaiah is saying to us. In fact, you'll find this to be the consistent message of Scripture. Take one New Testament book, For example, take the book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, the writer Paul praises God deliberately because He has taken notice of us. Blessed be God because He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption as His sons. He lavished His grace on us. He made known the mystery of His will to us. 
In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, the verbs that are used demonstrate that it's all His loving initiative that makes the difference. For His action is in accordance with His pleasure and His will, according to His good pleasure, according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Put all that together. You have purposes conceived before creation. You have the will of God, the pleasure of God, the purpose of God, the plan of God, because God has chosen us, predestined us, lavished on us, made known to us His will. In other words, the answer of the Bible is the opposite answer from what Stephen Hawking's gives to those who write into him. The God of the Bible is one who is interested and cares. He knows about your existence because He made you. He brought you into existence. And He has set His love upon His people, and He cares for His people. Isaiah the prophet got that 800 years before Christ. And as he announces in this great chapter 40, he announces that God will act to comfort His people. And what that means specifically is this. He will act to reconcile men and women to Himself by bringing an end to hostilities. He will pardon their iniquities. He will deal with and remove their sin. He will do it Himself. He will do it by His own initiative. He will do it by His own action, by coming into the world Himself. Now, that message seems too good to be true. Who could believe such a message? And when we come to verse 6, we find precisely that kind of response. An unidentified voice announces or says, cry. It's a command. Cry. Lift up your voice. Shout out. Say something is, is, the, is the call. And I said, again, un, uh, unidentified, but probably the prophet, I said, what shall I cry? What am I going to say? What have I to say to people? Isaiah has a problem, you see. He has a problem believing the message that has just been announced in verses 1 to 5. He has a problem getting his head around this good news that God should come to visit His people, that God should speak comfort into the hearts of His people. Ultimately, the answer, of course, to the language of those first five verses is the language of incarnation, that God comes Himself as a creature, that He takes on our creatureliness. He takes on our humanity in order to display His glory personally as an individual, as Himself coming to visit His people. Already Isaiah has noted that God displays something of His uncreated glory in created ways. He, he who is the uncreated God displays Himself through created means. For example, creation itself. The very enormity of the universe that Hawking recognizes is a demonstration of how big and great and powerful and wise God is because He has made it all by the power of His Word. He has demonstrated His uncreated being sometimes by 
fire and cloud and thunder and lightning by brilliant, splendid light. He has demonstrated it by the mighty acts of his servants like Moses and Elijah and Elisha, demonstrated that he is the God who made everything and can do what he pleases with what he has made. But above them all, he has demonstrated his glory in Jesus the Messiah. Here is the eternal, uncreated God in the form of created flesh. Flesh created by his own word, by a mysterious action in the womb of an ordinary woman. He has created flesh that he might himself possess and bring into the Godhead by the man Christ Jesus. But here's the great problem, you see, that Isaiah recognizes, and it's part of the message that is given to him. What shall he say? Well, here is what he has to say. All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. Now, I've, I've injected my interpretation at this point. Either this is his reason why he's asking the question, what shall I cry? Or this is what he has been given to say. I, I think it's what he's been given to say, though you probably will come to the same conclusion if you take it the other way around. Here is the reality. Either he's telling them that or he realizes it. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. And what has prompted this cry is a statement made in verse 5. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. It's talking about humanity, isn't it? It's talking about human flesh. Here we are, and everybody in this room unless there are any ghosts floating around. There's always that possibility, of course, with these monuments at the front, but but, uh, that's just superstition. But all of us sitting here this morning are enfleshed beings. It's in our flesh that we see each other. It's in our flesh that we engage with one another. We are enfleshed beings. And all flesh will see the glory of God. Isaiah thinks about that. You think about that for a moment. What is the reality of our flesh? Here is the message. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. He is using this language to underline the powerlessness, the instability, the insecurity, the fragility, the insignificance of human life. Life is tenuous. People are mortal. Life in humanity is grass, and there is nothing so inconsequential as grass. When we lived in London, we had a a church house, a manse, and at the side of the manse there was a large grassed-over area, and sometimes we had as many as 200 or so people from the church for garden parties there in the summer, and it was great. Now, when they came, they usually commented on the garden. They would comment on the work of the gardener. Now, I know the gardener pretty well. She does her job pretty reasonably. She's been doing it for a long time. I've kept her on uh, for about 43 years. And 
Uh, the interesting thing is they commented on the plants and they commented on the flowers and they commented on the trees and the bushes and all the other things. I don't think anyone ever, ever commented on the grass. Or if they did, it was, does your husband never cut the grass? Something like that. But they never commented on the grass. The only time my neighbor here has commented on the grass is to complain because the grass had disappeared off of the front of their yard by the road where we put the garbage out and they needed reseeded. Grass is inconsequential. And what Isaiah is saying with the Word of God is saying is this, all flesh, all humanity is as inconsequential as grass. Here today, gone tomorrow. And it doesn't matter how great the flesh is. It doesn't matter how beautiful the flesh is, and now and then you see flesh that is beautiful. Not often here, but now and then. And all flesh is going. Even the great men of the earth, even the great powers of the earth, all flesh is as grass. And Isaiah, you know, he, when he says these words, recognizes that all flesh as grass is ready at any moment to be blown away by the judgment of God. In fact, Isaiah had been given a commission early on in chapter 6 of this book to preach judgment. And he knew that all flesh had been found guilty before God. All humanity had been found full of iniquity, full of wounds and bruises and putrefying sores in the sight of of God. All flesh under judgment. All flesh is as grass. And he goes on to say, the breath of God will blow them away. Blow them away. That principle is that ultimately humanity is to stand before God under the judgment of God, and a little breath destroys it all. That means on another side that there, are, there is no power, there are no agencies, there are no humans who can in the end resist God and the accomplishment of His will. But you see what Isaiah is doing here is setting up a contrast. Here you have the transitory flesh of humanity on the one hand, and on the other hand you have the permanent Word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Here is God described as a faithful, a faithful promiser, a faithful God. God's Word will not fall. Now, what does He mean by that? He means every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, everything God says, none of it will fail or fall. No word of God will ever fall to the ground that is ever be lost. Any promise that He has made will be kept. Any threat that He has given will be carried out. God's Word is true. God's Word is powerful. God's Word is authoritative. God's Word accomplishes what He sends it out to do. Not one word of our God will be lost. God's Word stands forever. What is this Word? 
I've said it's every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, but in the New Testament, in 1 Peter, for example, chapter 1, when he's talking about our great salvation, he says this about Christian people, for example. He says, you were born again, not by perishable seed, not by something that is here today and gone tomorrow. What, your new birth, if you're a Christian person, you're being born again, you're being part of God's family, is an achievement of what? It is of the powerful Word of God. You are made alive by the powerful Word of God. And he goes on to then quote these very verses, and he f- says after he's quoted these verses, ending with the words, the Word of our God will stand forever. He says this, this is the Word that was preached to you. In other words, it's the Word of the gospel. The Word of the gospel takes dead people and makes them alive. The Word of the gospel brings home to guilty people the cleansing ministry of the Holy Spirit to wash away their sin. The Word of God takes people and creates faith in their hearts. The Word of the Gospel is a true Word of God. Paul the Apostle, writing to the Corinthians, says about the Word of the Gospel, he says, all the promises of the Gospel are yes and amen in Christ. In other words, they're, they're not just stated and they're nice to hear. They are yes in Christ. God does what He says. He keeps His promises. Not one word of them will fall to the ground. And so when God gives threats, those threats are real because as uh, the Apostle Paul says in Acts 17, He has appointed a day in which He will judge the world by that man whom He has ordained, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And God keeps His word of promise. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her iniquity is pardoned. And she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. God's word comes from a faithful God. It's a powerful word. It's a true word. That word that was spoken is now written in Scripture. And Jesus said about Scripture, Scripture cannot be broken because God's Word is a true Word. And uh, it was given, God's Word is given, and it is spoken to us. In other words, people did not dream this up. They did not concoct this book. For example, here, the, here is the prophet. Do you notice in verse 6, this prophet is struggling with what he's hearing. He's struggling with the message that he is to pass on to us. These are real people. They did not just glibly, automatically accept. They had to be conscious that this was the very message and very Word of God. And this Word of God is the Word of prophecy. And we've already been at pains to point out the pains to which Isaiah went in order to record this to notarize it, to put it in a public place so that any predictions he made could be verified by the people because a prophet of God had to be 100% accurate before his books got into the Bible as Isaiah's did. And ultimately, those, that Word of God finds its expression in Christ. He is the Word about whom the Word speaks. 
He is the Word who is in the beginning with God. He is the Word who's always been in face-to-face relationship, intimate relationship with God. He is the Word who is God. He is the Word who was made flesh. The Word of the the Lord will stand forever. And then the focus shifts. The focus shifts to the message itself. It's a message of good news, verse 9. A message of good news. Get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. This is a good news message that has been given to the church. Zion and Jerusalem represent the covenant community of God. From our New Testament perspective, they represent the church. The church has been given a message, and that message is good news. It's the gospel. The word gospel means good news, and it's for the world. And so the prophet, and by extension the church, are told not to be afraid to proclaim the gospel. Fear not, says God's Word. Now, why on earth should we be afraid to tell people good news? Why should we be afraid? Well, perhaps we might think that the act of proclamation itself lacks power. We might be tempted to think that the whole business of communicating, preaching the gospel is a kind of weak, ineffective, ineffectual means of communication. Or perhaps we worry that the message itself may lack sophistication. Or perhaps we're afraid of the response to our message that people will reject it or ridicule it. And in ridiculing the message, ridicule us and scoff at us and scorn us. This certainly was the experience of the church in the early years under Paul. You remember in Paul's preaching, he tells us that he was preaching Christ crucified. And here's the effect it had. It was a stumbling block to Jews, and it was utter foolishness to everybody else. A stumbling block to the Jews, and utter foolishness to everybody else. The message of a crucified Christ. No wonder the church needs to hear these words, fear not. Or perhaps the reason we need to hear those words is because we fear that the preaching will lead to suffering or persecution and even death. And you need to know that the preaching of the gospel may very well lead to those things. Jesus said, look, don't think for one minute that I have come to give peace on the earth. No, I tell you, I have come to bring division, Jesus says in Luke chapter 12. He says to his disciples, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in the synagogues, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Again, he said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And in case you haven't got the message in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. No wonder Isaiah is told, fear not. No wonder the church is being told, fear not. Get up to a high mountain and proclaim the good news. Go with your eyes open. 
There will be things that will terrorize you, terrify you in the business of proclaiming the good news of God's Word. But don't let it hold you back. Church of God, let's preach the good news of the gospel. Let's be bold and straightforward in preaching the gospel to the world. And you notice how we should preach the gospel. Loudly, fearlessly, Lift up your voice with strength, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. What is he saying there? Is he saying you just need to crank up the volume? Crank up the volume? Is that what he's saying? Well, he is saying that at one level. That's precisely what he's saying. But what he really is saying behind that is this. That in its proclamation of the good news of the gospel, the church of God has not to be tentative, hesitant, as if the church is only one other voice among many voices, or as if the church is only one seeker after truth like other seekers after truth, or as if the church of God is only one conversation partner in a dialogue. No, no, no. When God says to Isaiah and to the church, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. He is saying this to the church. You must be vigorous. You must be positive. You must be militant. There must be no hesitation. There must be no timidity. There must be no trembling. You must preach the Word fearlessly. It is the only truth out there. Tell the truth out to the world because it's the very Word of God. And again, I underline here, you see, it's Zion, the believing community of God's people that is to speak this Word. Back in chapter 2, Isaiah had predicted that out of Zion, the Word would go from Zion to the whole world. It's the duty, you see, of Zion the church, to declare the whole counsel of God to the whole world. That is our great commission. So the church is to get up and shout out fearlessly the message to the world from God's holy hill. The message is to resound out to the towns and cities. And you notice that particularly this message of good news has to be preached first to the cities of Judah. That has particular reference, of course, to the fact that our Lord Jesus is the first preacher of the gospel. And as He comes, you remember, He says to that Samaritan woman, salvation is of the Jews. The salvation of the world begins among the Jews. It begins in Jerusalem. It begins among the cities of Judah where the Savior walks. And from there to the world, to the world. What is the message? Behold your God. That word behold is one of the words that is Isaiah's kind of prophetic signature throughout the entire 66 books. There are other words. The Holy One of Israel is one of Isaiah's signature tunes. Uh, the, The glory of God is one of his signature expressions. And this word to behold is one of his signature 
expressions. It's very important in understanding the book of Isaiah. And behold, you know, is a very strong word. It's kind of the word when you're trying to get somebody's attention. Get my, you know, give me your eyes. Eyeball to eye. Those of you who are asleep, wake up right now. Look at me. (laughs) It's getting your attention, first of all. And it's directing your attention to something that is of massive importance. Behold. Don't just look. Focus on. Concentrate on. Give yourself to this business that we're pointing towards here. Behold your God. That's the message. Calvin says about this, the sum of all happiness consists solely in the presence of God. You see, what this call is saying is this, behold, not some exterior aspects of God, not just behold the heavens, the universe in its enormity and its size, behold the handiwork of God. No, this message is, behold your God personally. There He is. See Him. He is present. He is here. He is among us. He has arrived. There is God. There is God. John the Baptist, you remember, points the finger at Jesus. Boy, I I learned a remarkable thing about John the Baptist this week. I should have noticed it before. His father, Zechariah, calls himself, the Greek word, I think the English word is, I'm I'm too old to have a baby. That was the, but the Greek word, you know, is presbyteros. Zechariah was a Presbyterian. (laughs) And he had a son who was a Baptist. Anyway, there we go. And... I thought that was really, that was R.C. Sproul, by the way. I have to give credit where it's due. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And uh, anyway, John the Baptist, back to, back to your attention again, eyeballs, <laughs> points out, you remember? We're thinking about this word, behold. Behold your God. He points to someone in the crowd one day and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And at the very heart of this great message is the arrival of God Himself. He comes as a present Savior. He comes as a mighty warrior. Look at verse 10. Behold, again, the Lord comes with might and His arm rules for Him. His reward is with Him, His recompense before Him. He comes with might. Why does God come with might, with a strong arm? Well, it's because we humans have got strong enemies. Some of them we're not even conscious of. The Bible talks about the invisible enemies we have in the heavenly realms and that, that are there all around us all the time in our lives, manipulating events, dominating our culture, directing our society, destroying our souls, if they can get off with it. This invisible war surrounds us. This, is a, this invisible war embraces not only powers and authorities 
and spiritual rulers of the darkness of this present age that are in opposition to the church of God. The gates of hell constantly assaulting the people of God, the church of God in the world. But these powers of darkness take even the law of God and they use it as an accusation against our consciences, demonstrating to us how far short of the glory of God we are, telling us how far from God we are, how hopeless our case is, accusing us to ourselves as well as to God and to one another. They are the accuser of the brethren. These powers of darkness take full advantage of the fact that a Christian believer is at one and the same time justified before God and still a sinner, having a sinful nature. And these powers of darkness will take every opportunity to use your own sinful nature against you, finding a foothold, leverage in your life in order to gain access and to bring you down. There's Satan himself and all the organized kingdom of Antichrist, which is such a potent force in the world. And above all, there's that last enemy death facing us, the last battle to be fought, the last victory to be won. Here we are, and we have these potent enemies. And what this verse says is that when the Lord God comes, when Messiah comes, when the Savior comes, when God in flesh comes, He will deal with our enemies with strength. His mighty arm will see them off and will be victorious over them. No enemy can resist Him. No barrier can stop Him. Think of those words of Paul in Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh of the Son of God in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What that's saying is the law of God condemns us. In our flesh, we cannot keep the law of God. We are too weak too fragile, too frail, too sinful to keep the law of God. But what Christ has done, what has Christ done? He alone, He alone has kept the law of God. He alone has been faithful to His Father's word and will. He alone, on His own, has obeyed where we have disobeyed. He alone was without sin. He alone faced down and defeated Satan and all his works by resisting temptation both in the garden and in the wilderness. He alone defeated evil at their very worst on the cross. He alone was in the garden of Gethsemane. He alone was on the cross. He alone on his own suffered the wrath of God against sin. He alone on His own bore our sins in His own body on the tree. He alone on His own was buried and then rose from the dead. He alone on His own was the firstfruits of those who slept. He alone on His own conquered death and Satan, triumphed over Satan by the very work of the cross made a public display of Satan's inadequacy 
Satan's inability to hold on to the believer forever. He did that on his own, alone in our place and on our behalf. He is a mighty Savior. He was able to say to his Father, I've glorified you on earth and that by accomplishing everything that you gave me to do. And as the writer to the Hebrews puts it, when Christ had offered for all time one single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until all his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Hebrews 10. He is the mighty warrior. He fights for us. He fought Satan for us. He fought sin for us. He fought death for us. He fought temptation for us. He fought hell for us. And he triumphed over all. And this promised Savior, this mighty warrior, is a good shepherd. Look at the flow of the passage. Behold, your God is the message. Behold your God, He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who are these people? Who are His flock? You remember He said to the Jews who were gathered around Him on one occasion, the authorities, they said to Him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus said to them, I already told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. You are not part of my flock. Who are these people who are part of his flock? Are they better than other people? Are they greater than other people? Are they more obedient to God's law than everybody else? No. These are the people who are able to say as they come before their God, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us. As as Isaiah has been arguing right throughout this book, beginning in chapter 1 with Judah itself, even God's people are full of iniquity, full of wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. Like the rest of the world, we are condemned. Like the rest of the world, we are guilty before God, except for this glorious reality that our shepherd has laid down his life for the sheep. Now, what does it mean to have this shepherd? It means to have a relationship with him. Have a relationship with him. Interesting, the contrast in in this passage, you, you will notice that the word for arm is used twice. First time, it's the Lord whose arm rules for him and brings reward and brings recompense and brings judgment. 
It's a mighty arm that comes crashing down on his enemies. It's a mighty arm that destroys the works of the devil. It's a mighty arm that brings final judgment. But the same arm, do you notice this? The same arm reaches out in compassion to the sheep, to the lambs, to those who are carrying young, and lifts them up and nurtures them. You parents, you remember that time? Maybe you dads. Because we're the kind of outsiders, you know. We don't have anything to do with carrying the baby, you know, and the birth thing. We do the real stuff. When the baby arrives, three-quarters of the congregation are going to kill me later. Anyway, <laughs> we get the joyful bits without the pain. The pain comes later, paying the bills for college and stuff. But we get to lift up that little baby thing and to cradle it in our arms. You remember, if you're, if you're a parent, if you're a, a father, do you remember the first time you picked up your very first baby? And then the second, third, fourth, and fifth one. <laughs> there is nothing like it in the world. You hold that little thing, it's completely dependent on you. It's completely resting in you. That's the picture that's painted here, isn't it? picture of God. It was the Lord Jesus who called himself the Good Shepherd. It was the Lord Jesus who said he went out like a shepherd looking for the lost sheep. He said he would lay down his life for the sheep. He said he would lift the sheep up and enfold them so that they would never, ever be lost. The Lord Jesus said all of that. And I want you to notice that the care and the compassion of this shepherd is applied by the gospel to people in all kinds of need. So here, here you see the gospel of Jesus Christ in the New Testament is the gospel of Isaiah 40 transposed to a new, higher key. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus that Isaiah is seeing. This is what Christianity is. Christianity is Christ. And do you see the description there? There, there are all kinds of people in this flock. The lambs. Well, first of all, the flock themselves are tended by the shepherd. He, he meets every need of theirs. He feeds them. He cares for them. When they're heavy with wool and they're out in the field, and somehow or other they lose their way and they end up on their back. Twice in my life. Uh, I remember the last time was when Andrew, our son, was uh, about 13 or 14. He was fishing. I took him away into the countryside to fish. And while he was fishing, most boring thing in the face of planet Earth, I, I went off for a walk and uh, I walked over the fields and I found a sheep heavy with wool that had rolled onto its back. The poor thing could not right itself. In the end, the weight, it would, it would kill itself by the weight of its own body crushing it. And, and I put it right. I'd learned to do that when I was a boy, pull the sheep back onto its feet. Sheep didn't like being pulled. 
pulling its hair. But the shepherd does that. It does whatever the sheep needs to have done for it. The Lord Jesus shepherds the sheep. He tends the flock like a shepherd. Make sure the places to eat. He provides them with everything good. He blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. He gives us everything we need for life and godliness and for the knowledge of Him. He gives us everything we need. He supplies every need we have in Christ Jesus. But there are those in the flock, of course, who need particular attention. There are the lambs, the new Christians, the weaker Christian, the struggling Christian, the Christian who in their life has those moments where praying is an impossibility. Maybe there are things that have happened in your life, Christian friend, and the memory of those things is so tormenting to you that there are moments when you cannot rise above it, you cannot get beyond it. You remember the abuse of your childhood, perhaps, and when it comes to praying to God, you cannot pray for sheer anger that God should have allowed that to happen to you. And I want to say to you, dear beloved friend, you're trusting in the Lord Jesus. Let me say this to you. When you cannot pray for yourself, He's carrying you in His arm. When you can't make it on your own and you can't find your way out of the darkness of the night because of this overwhelming blackness that has descended upon your soul and you cannot sing joyfully because you do not feel happy. He's carrying you in His arms. When you're overwhelmed with illness, when there is such desperate discomfort or pain, such a dreadful diagnosis, such awful emptiness all around you and within you. The shepherd is carrying you. He's carrying you in his arms. Rest in him. Rest in him. Even if you can't rest on him, at least believe this word. He knows what to do with you. He knows what to do with you. Isn't it wonderful when you have someone in your life who knows what to do with you, whatever mood you're in, however bad you're feeling, however hard it is, they just know the right thing to do with you. Jesus tends the flock like a shepherd. My dearly beloved, the sovereign God has what you need. We sing about this, don't we? Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind. That's my condition very often. And I need to know that what God does in those circumstances is He gives me sight, riches, healing of the mind. We sing, praise my soul, the King of heaven, to His feet thy tribute bring. Why do we praise Him? Why do we bring our tribute? Because we are ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. What a great Savior is mine and is yours. Let's pray together.
Father, we pray today that you would take your word. We pray that we would feel it as well as understand it. That the word of God would touch our emotions deep within us as well as informing our minds of its truth. That it would so overwhelm us that our affections would be, would be enabled to be redirected towards you. Thank you that you are in Christ for us a mighty warrior who's fought our battles, and a great shepherd who tends to our need. Each of us individually, as our need is, so his supply is also. We pray that you would help us to rest on him and on him alone. We pray in his strong name. Amen.